Our Father, we are so thankful that we sing a hymn like this. Your mercy is more. It fills our hearts. We are undeserving. And yet, God, in your great mercy, you reach out to us. May we, by your word now, come to a deeper understanding of these things. Would you bless us by your spirit? Apply your words to our hearts. Anoint us as faithful listeners to that which you want to reveal to us this morning. Thank you for all this. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. behalf of uh, our pastoral staff, David, I never got a chance to say thank you. That was great. Always great to be appreciated in those ways. And uh, we have had a very blessed year as a church and our staff has uh, definitely felt that. So we appreciate these things. We are turning to the book of Revelation once more again today. Revelation, we're in the second chapter, last book of our Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That word revelation, some of you may have a translation or at least puts in some notes that the word revelation is the word apocalypse. When you hear the word apocalypse, what we usually think of is destruction, death, catastrophe. You know, those are the movies, those are the things that takes place. How does this become an apocalypse? Well, apocalypse is an unfolding. It's an unveiling. It's a revealing is what the, the word really means. One writer says that it's taking the lid off so we see what's inside. And in the book of Revelation, the lid is taken off the future. And if you read the book of Revelation, and many who do get scared by it, get confused by it, it is kind of one of those books because of its imagery. But if nothing else, you understand that this is the end of all things. And God is moving upon the nations. And God is moving against the enemy, Satan. And God is moving, and the world is experiencing catastrophe, disaster, discussion, destruction. And so the word apocalypse has taken off from that just being an unveiling to an unveiling of destruction, an unveiling of, of great wrath, an unveiling of what takes place. And so in our context, apocalypse has taken on a different shade of meaning. But in this book, the apocalypse, it's that unveiling. There is an unveiling of what is going to be taken place by God's hands. In the very first chapter, the first couple of verses, just to review for us, it says this. This is the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. And he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart, what is written in it, because the time is near. What a great introduction to a book, right? We're blessed if we hear it and we read it. And yet too often we uh, leave this book and we're not going to be studying the whole thing, but just those opening couple of chapters where the seven churches, a message is given to them. And as Marcio pointed out last week, these seven churches in chapters two and three, uh, the number seven is a significant number all through scripture, especially for the writer John. You see it in his gospel and here it's the idea of completeness or fullness. So these seven churches are not just to be taken as individual churches, but rather representing the whole. It's a complete number. The point being that we can see our church in these churches 
and we should take heed how Jesus sees the church and what's foundational for Herbert's bride. And so today we're coming to the church in Smyrna and you see that little map and it's interesting as you look at the map that these seven churches are all there in, in Asia Minor. Uh, someone has said that it was probably the postal delivery route, the order, that if you were a postman, you'd start at Ephesus, go to Smyrna, up to Pergamum, make your way back around. You know, so these are letters to seven churches, but it's more than just those seven churches. It's written for us. And today we're going to be in chapter 2, looking at verses 8 to 11, particularly at this church in Smyrna. Smyrna, as you just noticed on the map, was 35 miles north of Ephesus in Asia Minor. It was a second city that uh, the postman might have got to. In a political and religious sense, the city had been supported or supported Rome for over 200 years and was known as one of the most prosperous cities of Asia Minor. And around 25 AD, it won the favor of Rome to erect a temple to the Emperor Tiberius. There was actually kind of a contest that took place between 22 cities that were vying for this honor to be the place where this temple for emperor worship as Rome was developing and they developed that sense that their emperor was not only king but was the one who was over all and really there was a worship that developed around him. And in 25 AD, Smyrna was selected as the place where this temple to the emperor was going to be raised up. So obviously in this city, the cult or the, the worship, this cult worship was a matter of great pride. It's important to note that under the emperor Domitian, uh, who was in 81 to 96 AD, so right during the time of when John was writing this, that emperor worship became compulsory for every Roman citizen on threat of death if you did not follow this worship. It was an act that was probably more an expression of political loyalty than religious worship. But nonetheless, each citizen would have been called upon to, and it's not sure how regular this was, but each one was called to take a pinch of incense, drop it on the burning altar, and say, Caesar is Lord. Can you see how Christians would have a problem? Our confession is Jesus is Lord. And they would refuse to do this, which put them at odds with their fellow citizens and put them at odds with Rome as a whole. And so they were seen with great suspicion. We don't know when the church of Smyrna was established, as it's not mentioned in the book of Acts or other New Testament letters. Many would surmise that it was at the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey as he was making his way to Ephesus, that he probably passed through Smyrna and established this church there. And out of those humble beginnings, this church grew to a place where that it was recognized at this point by the Apostle John, as he's writing, as one of those seven significant churches that were going to be addressed in this letter. And so in Revelation 2, verses 8 to 11, one of the shortest sections of these seven letters we read this message to them. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions. I know your poverty, yet you are rich. 
I know about the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Just in that, la that line, if you have ears to hear, it's that sense. It's not just for Smyrna, it is for us. But these messages go beyond just the individuality of each church. Let us hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. As we continue in this series of studies, I'm preaching today. Derek's going to preach. Pete Ott's going to take one. As we come in November, our pastor, Dave Gray, is going to be here to preach November 19th. That's going to be his first Sunday with us. And then uh, my son Ian's going to be back with us at the end of November to finish off. All seven churches, you're going to see a pattern develop. I won't need to, we won't go over this every week, but there's a very obvious pattern. These are the words of, and Jesus is presented to us. That there is a message given with one of the characteristics of Jesus being highlighted from the Apostle John given to us in the first chapter. And then Jesus goes on to say, I know. And he tells what he knows about each of these churches. And in each church, he gives a commendation. And in each church, he gives, that's not true, not every church. He usually gives a commendation. And then he also gives a bit of a rebuke. He commends them for what he sees among them. But then he also says, but I have this against you. And he reminds them and points into their, the heart and the life of their church that there is something lacking among them. In our church today, the lacking part isn't given. We'll see perhaps why in a moment. Last week, if you remember, the priority purpose of first love among the church in Ephesus had gone missing. And Jesus called them to return to their first love. They were full of deeds and good things, but they had lacked the purpose and the motive behind that. And then finally comes a command from Jesus and the promise of reward or blessing for obedience to that. And as I said, the message to you, Smyrna is going to be unique in that Jesus doesn't identify anything among them that needs his correction. Rather, he identifies among them that they need his encouragement to stand firm. And it seems fitting because what he identifies among them what he marks out in them as a church is that they are a suffering church. It's a suffering church. They're under affliction. They're under persecution. We'll look at some of those details in a moment. But as Jesus comes to them, he says, I know what's going on among you and how you are being oppressed. And I think at that point, Jesus says, and that's enough. <laughs> You know, I also don't need to start pointing out any flaws, church. You're going through enough, and you are standing in the midst of this. It's not an easy message to deliver. It's not an easy message to deliver when someone is suffering, to say, I know you're suffering, and all I can say is get ready for more, because that's what this message is about. But the church will suffer. It's a consistent message from Jesus for his disciples and for his church. 
as Jesus began his public ministry, we call it the Sermon of the Mount back in Matthew chapter 5. At the end of that sermon, at the end of the Beatitudes, he finishes with this. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice, be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Disciples, be ready. <laughs> there is going to come persecution and, and false accusations against you. But rejoice, be glad when you're doing it in my name, for this is the way they treated the prophets. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, said, to follow me, there will be a cost. There will be a price that you will pay for bearing my name. We see it all through the New Testament, Acts 5, and the story of Peter and John as they performed a miracle and then were brought before the Sanhedrin and all that discussion that took place. At the end of that whole passage, we read there in Acts 5, verse 40, it says that he, or Gamaliel, he stood up and, and spoke on their behalf in the Sanhedrin, and his speech persuaded them. And they, the Sanhedrin, called the apostles in. They had them flogged, and then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And then look at this verse. And the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. To suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. Peter and John left rejoicing that they had borne a suffering in the same way that Jesus had borne a suffering. And day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Church, we cannot be surprised if we face opposition, if we face suffering, because we stand and bear the name of Jesus, if we stand for his grace and his truth. And we are called to be faithful. And faith in Jesus will fill our hearts with love for him so that we are willing to suffer opposition and even persecution in his name. It's been a mark of the church since its inception. Now, this doesn't mean that we go looking for suffering. It doesn't mean that we go for looking for ways to stir up opposition and persecution against us. Rather, we are called to be faithful we are called to be students of the word of God. We are called to hold to the truths of the gospel and hold them strongly and dearly. And as we do that, and as we do it openly, and as we do it in faith, we are to expect that there will be uh, negative reactions from our culture. This is what the letter to Smyrna is all about. They were experiencing the opposition, the persecution, coming from their culture so here's what it looked like look back at verse 9 chapter 2 verse 9 we read this i know your afflictions and your poverty jesus says i know about the slander that you are facing do you remember what is taking place in this vision it's the vision that john has of jesus standing among seven candlesticks which we're told in chapter 1, those candlesticks are the seven churches. 
And it's that picture of Jesus standing among them. That is to have that sense of that Jesus is among them and with them. And in his right hand, he holds seven stars, which we are told are the angels of the churches. It's hard to know exactly what he meant by the words angels. Is this that there is a, uh, a sense of an angel assigned to every church? Was he talking more about the pastoral leadership within the churches that Jesus was holding them? There's a few different ways of looking at that. Whatever it is, you have the picture of Jesus holding in his hand those who deeply represent each one of those churches. So he's among them and he's holding them. This is the picture that is being given to each church, that Jesus intimately among them. And then what does he says? I know, I know, is what he's saying. Isn't it great to have someone who knows? When you're suffering pain, when you are in a burden, you're under grief, isn't it great when someone comes along and says, I, I know. I know what it is you're going through. I know what it is you're experiencing. It's even better when someone's able to come along and say, I know because I've been down that road as well. And this is where Jesus is coming from. Jesus is coming to each one of these churches and saying, I know because I've traveled the road. Do you see how Jesus is introduced to the church at Smyrna? Back up in verse 8, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I've walked the road of suffering before. I've suffered to the place of death, but I live again. I know, Smyrna. I know what it is that you're going through. I know your afflictions, your poverty, I know the slander. Look at each one of those. I know the afflictions that you are in. From the context and history of what we know about this church and some of the political climate that was surrounding them, this was an affliction that was coming in the form of physical persecution. People were being arrested. People were being imprisoned. People ultimately were being put to death for how they stood for the name of Jesus and his gospel. It's not too hard to see how this city of prideful emperor worship that these Christians who refused to burn the incense and confess Caesar as Lord were set apart for punishment. I mean, political power dressed up on the roads of religious ideologies just don't stand for people that will have their own voice, that will say we believe differently. They would be branded as traitors or saboteurs or at least religious fanatics. And there were consequences for identifying with a different ruler than Caesar. And Jesus goes on to warn them of coming imprisonment, even of death that is going to face. I know what's going on, he assures them. I know the afflictions that you are facing. I know your poverty, he says. I know how you are being affected. And this isn't a kind of a metaphorical type of word or just a symbolic word. These folks are experiencing material hardship. It's that kind of word that says that they were, they were lacking in their material possessions. And again, we can only imagine that some censure was happening because of their expressed 
faith in Jesus and their denial of the emperor. Perhaps they were blacklisted in the marketplace and couldn't sell their goods or they couldn't buy and trade as other people were. You know, their services were no longer required. And so how they were making their income was, was dwindling away. Or there are the whispers that you can trust that lot. They were the fanatics who claimed to follow this resurrected King Jesus. Or perhaps it was just in their benevolence to those that surrounded them. As they faced hardship themselves, they also saw others who were facing hardship. And the Christian call to love for one another so gripped their hearts that they gave themselves and lived in a simplicity that it brought them into poverty. We're not told. But Jesus says, I know your poverty. I know how you're living. I know the lack that you have in your life. But here he gives them a glimmer of hope. But I also know how rich you are. <laughs> See, I, I know your poverty, yet you are rich, he says. As he says that they are rich, Jesus is thinking more not in that sense of how many material possessions you have, but who you are in Christ. That who you are becoming in God, you are rich towards God. You are rich in your faith. You are rich in good deeds. You are storing up treasures in heaven. How are they doing this? Because they are standing in faith. They're remaining true to their first love of Jesus, which is stimulating them to be able to stand when the opposition comes, to be able to stand in the midst of, of a lack and to see it as all that they need. Remaining true to who Jesus has revealed himself to be. And behind the scenes, as they are standing in faith, the enemy is rallying his troops against them. Do you see how Jesus quickly moves from these afflictions and their poverty to understand that, they, that Satan, that the devil is against them? He says, this is the underlying sense of what's happening around you. And this is really what the story of Revelation is. It's the unveiling that there is a warfare taking place for the kingdoms, for, for God's kingdom. The enemy is against us. And so those in the church are facing opposition because the enemy, Satan, and his hosts are rising against God's kingdom. Reminds me somewhat of Job, who doesn't see the other world battle that's against him taking place. You know that story of Job that Satan came to God and said, you know, is there anyone righteous because just they love you, not because you protect them? And God says, well, take, I'll take my hand off, Job. And the enemy has free reign and causes him sickness and grief and, and takes from him everything. But Job stays faithful. The thing is, in Job's life, he didn't know what was going on in heaven. All he had was to be faithful. All he had was to say, God, whatever comes, I still believe you are God. And this is what the church at Smyrna is being asked for. They maybe don't understand behind the scenes what is taking place, but Jesus says, I know your poverty and you're rich because your faith is shining through. And you have before you a future and a hope that is being laid down for us. Those are extremes, but the pattern is there. 
The question for us is, are we willing to lose in this world to gain the praise and the commendation of our Lord and Savior for eternity? And finally, he says, I know your affliction, I know your poverty, and I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. That's very strong language. To label this group that is against them a synagogue of Satan. I suggest perhaps this is the greatest source of suffering for this church. That there is a Jewish community that surrounds them that was coming into bitter conflict with these Christians. John Piper puts it this way, and I've got a couple of longer quotes from him today. It's the problem when you're preparing sermons, you listen to some people and say, man, I can't say that any better. (laughs) So I've got a couple for him today. He says this about what was going on. He says, in other words, the Jewish synagogue was speaking things about the Christians, which the Christians regarded as slander. This slander was probably in the form of official indictments to the Roman authorities that the Christians put another king above Caesar, which was true, and that they were rebellious and dangerous, which was false. Isn't that the powerful kind of slander? You take a little bit of truth, but then you twist it. And that was coming up against this Christian church. The Jewish community did not have the right and power to punish the Christians, so they sought to get them in trouble with the Roman government. For example, when Paul planted the church in Thessalonica, the Jews stirred up a mob and said to the authorities, these men have upset the world and act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another King Jesus. And back in Acts 17, do you remember the riot that ensued because of that? They were upsetting the world. This was what was taking place in Smyrna. They were rising against them, bringing these slanderous accusations. Remember what the roots of our faith are? They're drawn out of the Jewish world. Jesus was Jewish. Our theological constructs of of sacrifice and law come from Old Testament. We are grafted into the faith of Abraham. In Galatians, we are called the sons, daughters of Abraham. Lots to be said about what that all means for us. But in in Smyrna, it would also be possible that a blend of Jews and Gentiles made up the church. Those who would embrace, embrace Jesus as Messiah. And that those so opposed from the synagogue would be particularly painful for them. And especially when you see how Jesus characterizes the nature of this attack. At its foundation is the work of Satan. They said very harsh words, calling them the synagogue of Satan. In verse 10, it says that the devil will put some in prison. He's identifying the underlying work that is taking place against this church. And so the slander that's coming against them is so hard to to fight against, so hard to stand up against. Because it doesn't matter what you start to say against, you get accused We face that so much in our day and age. Doesn't matter what we say on behalf of truth, it gets turned somehow against us. Those in Smyrna are experiencing it firsthand. As I was working my way through this passage and reading commentaries and thinking about this tension between the synagogue and the church, 
I was reading a number of warnings that uh, the other commentators would bring to the church about just the whole uh, pattern and feelings of anti-Semitism that has been in our world. I think with all that's going on in Israel and Gaza these days, it was particularly sensitizing to me. We know that for millennia, there's been great tension between the church and Jewish cultures. Do we understand our embracing of Jesus as the Messiah? That Jesus is the fulfillment of Jewish prophecies and he is the hope of our covenant of salvation? That is a great stumbling block for many Jews coming to faith. As well, there are passages like this one that can be taken in a way to suggest that our scriptures paint a poor picture of Jewish culture. There are many in the, in the Jewish world who would say that the Christian faith almost by definition is anti-Semitic. It is against them. And then you add to that both the subtle and overt anti-Semitism that's been expressed by the Christian culture through the centuries. Obviously, many, many layers to these things. We have many deep rivers to cross in this. But we are called to greater things. This passage isn't about let's condemn and step down on, on Jewish folks. It's saying this is the reality of what was happening at that time. Our call as the church is to love and to bless and to pray for Jewish people, that they would come to the realization of who the, the, the Messiah is in Jesus. John Piper spent quite a bit of time on this, and so I want to quote just a couple of ideas to just kind of touch lightly on this today. He said there's two reasons why he was dwelling on this issue. The first is this. He says, one is, to do, one is to remind us that all I can do to turn you away from hatred and persecution and ridicule of God's estranged people, the Jews. May we love them, pray for them, and with truth and compassion lead them to life in Jesus. To the Jew first and then the Gentile. We need to be in prayer that God would do a great work among that nation and in those people. In the days of tension and war that's taking place, we need to pray. We need to pray for what's taking place. And peace seems so difficult to attain there. But can we lift them up? And if we have those who are from the Jewish culture and faith and, 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 and surround us here in the city, we need to befriend and love them and share with them the love of Jesus. The other reason that we need to be thinking about this with the Jews and charges of anti-Semitism, the second part of his quote is this. He says, it relates to anti-Christian attitudes in general. Piper says, I want to help prepare you for the hard truth that today, just as in Revelation 2.9, the opponents of Christianity are going to oppose us, not by saying that we are wrong, but by saying that we are evil and dangerous. Anti-Semitic, anti-choice, anti-woman, anti-gay, anti-intellectual, anti-tolerance, anti-diversity, anti-anti, etc., etc. Have you experienced any of that? I mean, it's, it's rampant in our culture and our political system right now. And it's this last sentence that really struck me. And recognize that they, our, our culture, will do this in direct proportion to how public we are about the claims of Christianity. The more public we become 
about what the truth of the gospel is, for the well-being of people, for how God has designed us to be in his image and to be his image bearers in this life, and that the, the best thing for us is this, conf, uh, is this reformation of our lives into the image of Jesus Christ. It's where health and beauty and hope is ultimately found. The more public we become about this, the more that we will face this anti-sense of saying how we are evil and dangerous. This is what the church at Smart is facing. This is what we as a church will face still today. Jesus still says, I know about the slander, the accusations, the lies, the misinformation. I know your affliction. I know your poverty. I know all that you have lost. And what does he say to the church? Look at verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. To be honest with you, there's a part of me that would like something else from Jesus at this point. How about, you know, don't be afraid. I'm going to take care of it. <laughs> Your enemies will be destroyed. There will be no opposition. You won't have any more pain. But Jesus says, don't be afraid. <laughs> be prepared for deeper pain is about to come. And he doesn't say hide. He doesn't say be silent. He says, be faithful. Be faithful. Who's giving this message to them? The first and the last, the one who died and came to life again. John heard that same message from him after seeing his overwhelming vision in the first chapter. Chapter 1, verses 12 to 18, do you remember? it? He saw one that looked like a son of man standing among the candlesticks, the stars in his right hand, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, a golden sash on his chest, hair like wool, eyes like blazing fire, feet like bronze glowing in the furnace, a voice like thunderous waters, a sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance and when john saw him he fell at his feet though dead john was overwhelmed in this vision at the glory of who jesus in his divinity glory uh, in his glory as he comes before john fell as dead and then we read and jesus placed his right hand on me and said do not be afraid same words for church at smyrna don't be afraid i am the first and the last i am the living one i was dead and now look i am alive forever and ever and i hold the keys of death and hades don't be afraid church of smyrna don't be afraid, James North. I am with you, is what he's saying. I am with you because I have walked that road before you. I've gone through death and I live forevermore. The first and the last is with you. I was dead. Did that stop me? No. I'm alive forever and ever. And the church will be a suffering church just as Jesus suffered in this life. 
And we are called to be faithful and in faith to not be afraid. And in that faithfulness is where we will find Jesus. And all through this message, the Smyrna, Jesus encourages the church, reminding them of what is real and what is going to endure because they are faithful to him. Look at just these three kind of statements that Jesus makes of himself. He says, first, Jesus is the first and the last, the one who died and lives. That title, first of last, is born from Old Testament scriptures. When God declares to Israel, I am the first and the last. He is the absolute Lord of history. He is the creator. He is alone God. And it shows here that Jesus is firmly allying himself as the Trinity, God himself coming and standing with the churches. And yet he became a man and walked among us and he died. He suffered to the point of dying the horrible death on a cross that through his sacrifice that our sin might be forgiven and we might be brought into an eternal uh, life with him. Jesus went through death before us. Do you realize death is not the worst thing that can happen to us? Why? Because we are united to the one who triumphed over death and who lives forevermore. Second, he's just those simple words, Jesus knows. He knows our afflictions. He knows our poverty. He knows our pain. He is not a distant king. He is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses and our troubles. He is near and present. And we must not resent that he does not remove the pain. Rather, we need to be thankful and embrace that he knows and cares and will carry us and will guide us through. Recognize how rich we are, even in poverty, even in present, even in death. That same Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. If you are children of God, then you are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. This is coming out of Romans. Remember that the sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed in us. There is a glory that is ours found in Jesus Christ. And as we are faithful and understand his love, it is birthed more and more within us. And finally, Jesus assures us the victory. Andrew, you and the team can come up as we end with this. That ending verse, Jesus says to them, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. And if you have ears, let you hear what the Spirit is saying, that the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Life is our crown. Eternal life is our crown. Do you see that it's a gift? It's not earned. It's not worked for. Jesus says, I will give you life. Piper says again, when the fight is fought and the race is run and you die at the finish line, the wreath that will be put on your head will be the crown of everlasting life. No more pain, no more slander, no more shame, no more tears, no more depression, no more frustration, no more discouragement. Only life and light and joy and God for 
forever. This is our inheritance. This is our victory. This is our peace. So we are called to stand firm, to stand faithful, because Jesus is the first and the last, the one who died and lives. And Jesus knows. He knows you. He knows us as a church. He knows our affliction. He knows the slander. He knows the struggle and is there with us in the midst of it. And Jesus assures us the victory. This message is a searching for us as it was for that church. If we are true and faithful, we should expect to suffer. But let us be faithful and not fear. For Jesus Christ is ours and walks with us. Father, thank you for this incredible messages that you bring to the church through these seven churches in Revelation. And may each week our heart be filled with what you call us to and what you think of your church and how you guide and direct us. Bless us, O oh God, with your presence, with an awareness of who you call us to be. Amen.